as we continue our study of the topic began last Lord's Day evening about the Lord's Day, I want us to study some more, some principles concerning the Lord's Day. We have much to rejoice about, and one of the gifts of the Lord is this very day that we're observing here. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, to what you may feel is an obscure portion of Scripture on this, but I think you'll see that it's not after all. We'll look at various portions of Scripture, but in the context here in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul, well, the Scripture speaks for itself, and we'll just read it. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, he's already given this order to countless churches in in Galatia, so he's giving the same order to the church at Corinth. And what is that? He tells them what it is. Upon the first day of the week. Now, we would submit that if Paul has instructed all the other churches that he had anything to do with in Galatia, which is a large number of churches, that when they met, as they regularly did already, we see here, upon the first day of the week, when you meet for worship, that would be a good time to take up an offering. Wouldn't you you say amen to that? We just did that. We put the scripture into, we're very scriptural here. We We just exemplified what I'm preaching here. Upon the first day of the week, when you gather, as was their uh, habit by now, for lack of better words, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him. And no one is exempt from this uh, offering, that there be no gatherings when I come. And Paul is efficient. He wants the offering already in hand when he gets there. He doesn't have to plead and beg for it. And so the elders, the pastors should go ahead and do that legwork for him. And when I come... Whomsoever you shall approve by your letters, they will vet and and verify ones are trustworthy to help bring that offering to the needy folks at Jerusalem. You see they're doing everything decently and in order and uh, very, very uh, much in detail. Will I send to you, bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. And if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me, if it's appropriate, necessary. Now I will come unto you. And when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia, and it may be that I will abide, yea, in, in winter with you. He's given them warning. I might just come stay the whole winter, hold a winter-long Bible conference with you, Corinthians, and bring me on my, that you may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. For I will not see you now, by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permit, if the Lord This is the Lord's willing, if he allows. We see Paul very determined, this is my plan, I do determine to come to you. Then he backs up and says, well, if if the Lord permits, we should have that boldness and that determination, but also that willingness and and bowing to the will of the Lord. But I will not see you now, if the Lord permits, but I will tarry at Ephesus unto Pentecost. Again, that's his plans. For a great door and effectual is opened to me, and there are many adversaries. We just point there, those opening verses, upon the first day of the week, as they were, their habit was to meet, they were to make this offering. And we're going to see some principles concerning the Lord's day as we meet tonight. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this is your word. Oh, Lord, bless us and instruct us by it. We so long to hear you to speak to us and instruct us. We pray that you would uh, convince us of the truth of your word and help us by your spirit uh, to be willing and submissive and not just to be hearers of it, but doers of it, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let me say from the outset, there's some who 
disagree with uh, the teaching here, especially regarding the Lord's Day. And I will just say that, uh, you know, I don't argue with anybody about uh, the, the things that we teach and preach here. And I will say that I'm fully persuaded of the things that I, I mentioned here tonight. And if you have a, a, a fully persuaded a different way, you know, we'll not settle anything by, by that. You know, there are people who have an earnest question and who want to know uh, doctrine and truth. That's, that's one thing. But to, to argue and leave messages and argue about uh, my position, I'm convinced of it, and you must be convinced of yours, and so we'll just leave it at that. So can I just start with that, and then we'll move along, all right? When we consider how the Old Testament believers observed the Sabbath, we see what a powerful witness it was. And I think one of the things that we often overlook in observing these, uh, the, the Lord's Day and as they observed the Sabbath, we see what a powerful witness it was to, be, to the unbelieving nations around them. They, they had seen nothing like it. There was no observance in this way that the Lord prescribed for his people. We see how, how peculiar and particular we are in this gift that the Lord has given us of his uh, rest. We have a rest in salvation, and we commemorate that by a day of the week we set apart to praise the Creator and the Savior and the Redeemer in a very special way. Just think of, of how much they must have marveled at the Jews, the nations around them, ceasing from their labors on that day, how, observe, how strictly they observed it. No planting or plowing or building and in an, in an agrarian society, every day is vitally important. And so we can imagine how they wondered, what, this is a good day to plow. You're wasting this whole day. Uh, we have just a window of time to get the crops in. And yet they so uh, guardedly kept the observance of the Sabbath. And, and in that society, when they existed upon crops and herds, they, they wondered, had to scratch their heads, and wondered at the Jews ceasing from their labors one day a week. They must have wondered, how did they get it all done? It's every day, all day long to, to get, make a living. And I, I wonder how they get it done as they observe them carefully revolving all their lives around one day of the week. They would have taken note of their careful planning, wouldn't they? And their preparing to make ready uh, in a special way to observe this day, to make it all work. It's a matter of priorities we have mentioned. And let me ask you, in light of that, does your worship, does our worship in commemorating the Lord's Day, does it in our priorities in regards to the Lord's Day say anything to the unbelieving world around us and those unbelievers who know us and live near us and who may be related to us, does that speak to them today? Do they say, why do those Christians guard and observe the Lord's Day so carefully? See how they gather together for worship and how for encouragement and exhortation. See how they, they share their means to support the, 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 their cause, as we've mentioned in the scripture reading tonight. One can never estimate the impact these priorities have on unbelievers and these practices on, on lost family members or our co-workers or our neighbors. One of the reasons the Lord in his sovereignty at the beginning of creation, before man was placed on the earth, as we saw last week, set a Sabbath principle, a, a memorial, reserved one day out of the week to be remembered and to be honored. Remember, this is the Lord's appointment. It's not man's appointment. It is the Lord's gift to us. And we must look at it that way or we'll view it in the wrong way. And so we would be well uh, to consider that.
He is, after all, the creator, isn't he? And the king of all things. It is he that hath made us, we read tonight, and not we ourselves. We are his people, after all, and the sheep of his pasture. Therefore, because of those glorious facts, we should enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. When we build our lives around the Sabbath principle, we are using a means of grace that the Lord has given to us to sanctify us. Remember that God's goal is not just to save us, but after that salvation, He begins a work of perfecting us and sanctifying us and equipping us for that eternal Sabbath, rest and worship of Him. When we make His priorities our priorities, do you see this is a matter of aligning ourselves up under the authority of the Lord and his, what He says is precious and good and right and uh, notable to him, when we make that our priorities, we see that our lives take on an order and purpose that brings peace and blessing. This is a sanctifying ordinance, a, a training tool that the Lord has given to us that will affect all the other days of the week as well. For when we give priority here, it is easier to give priority in the other things of life that are important. Remember, seek ye first the kingdom of God on the first day of the week. That makes sense, doesn't it? And then all these things will be added to you in their proper time and place as you seek my face in, in his will. People who are disciplined to not only just that, but who, including disciplining and remembering the Lord's day and observing it, have an orderliness about their lives and a sanctification that the Lord intends for his people. I'm amazed, I'm absolutely amazed at the pastors and churches who treat the Lord's day so lightly, especially in our day. As if the scripture doesn't address the fact, in fact, you may have heard that the, them say the Bible doesn't say anything about it. Uh, as if the the scripture doesn't address the issue at all, that in this day of grace, praise the Lord for that, and the the liberty that we have in Christ, that nothing really matters. God really doesn't care about these things, and neither should we. You know, just because a few preachers are uptight about it doesn't mean that we should be. But nothing could be further from the truth. Even in the Old Testament, and we look there for principles that are set uh, for God's attitude toward things. We see that God feels a certain way. We seem to forget that. In our day, people seem to think well, whatever we like, God should like or put up with it. It doesn't matter. But nothing could be further from the truth. We see in the Old Testament that one of the, the points that God had to pick with Israel, if you want to put it that way, was the very area that I'm talking about just now. He, he points out to Israel's spiritual leaders uh, in Ezekiel chapter 22, the sin of, among other things, of profaning his day. There's a conspiracy, he says. Now, this is the Lord's estimation, not the priest. This is God speaking. And he declares this. There is a conspiracy of her prophets of all people. Imagine that. In the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the prey, they have devoured souls. Think of that. God's ministers. They have taken the treasure and the precious things, these things that we hold dear, and they have made her many widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law. They have profaned my holy things. They have put no difference. Listen to this, church. They have put no difference between the holy and the profane. 
Now, God, in his sovereignty, in his all-wise ways, has said there is some, that which is holy and that which is profane. In the sin of my priests and my prophets, they've not distinguished between the two. Would you not say that's 2015 in the, the church at large? You've, you've blurred the line so that nothing matters, anything goes, and you've made no difference between the holy and the profane. And if the church doesn't know the difference, how can those outside the house of God know that there's any, any difference? And hid their eyes from my Sabbath, as if there's no such thing. Let's just let's do away with it. And I am profaned among them. So how does God say, I'm, a, I'm profaned among Israel? Your leaders have made no difference between that which is holy and that which is profaned. And you've just turned your eyes, you've covered your eyes against my Sabbath, as if by doing so, it'll just go away. And so he goes on, he gives all other kind of, of, of uh, decrying against his people. When we read of the Lord giving the mandate uh, to Israel to observe later, in Exodus chapter 16, when he, when he gives that, that he'd already given and stated at creation, which was set in motion there, the ordinance set up. And then when they have left the, the land of bondage and have come into the land of promise, he reiterates this Sabbath principle before he ever enumerates the law. Again, you must take careful note of the order of things in Scripture. When it was given, when it was reiterated, before he ever repeats it the third time in the law, he mentions it in Exodus 16. Remember, Exodus 20 is when he enumerates the moral law of God. And he tells them this, and it's interesting. He goes ahead and tells them, on the, the day before the Sabbath, you must gather enough manna for the Sabbath because guess what? There's not any coming on the Sabbath day. If you're going to eat, you'll gather it on the day before because there'll be none to gather uh, on the next day. It was the only day they could hoard, if you will, or save extra. On any other day, what would happen if they gathered too much? If they let it stay on the, in the cupboard or in the refrigerator today where you have science projects going on in some people's uh, cu cupboards, and we'll, I digress and I'll move on. If you do that, that's what will happen. It will rot, it will stink, and it will become, you won't, it will be no use. So who's in charge here? Our Heavenly Father graciously supplying all that we need in His way and at His description, at His mandate. In a sense, and then he, you know what He says about that? That He's giving it to test them. He says there in, in, in uh, Exodus chapter 16, that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. So one of the proofs of God's people and their love for him and their obedience to his law is how they regard his Sabbath. In a sense, the Lord's day shows our obedience to the Lord, our submitting our wills and our schedules and our plans to his design, to his schedule, to his plans. When we ignore God's plan in any area of life where he's so clearly spoken, we will reap the bitter results. We see that. We've seen that in the lives of the patriarchs as we're, we're plowing our way through Genesis. These were written, why? Aforetime for what? Our entertainment? <laughs> for our diversion? For our learning? That we may say, oh, okay, that's how that works. And that's what happens if you ignore or violate 
the clear leading and teaching of the Lord. And we've learned just innumerable lessons, haven't we, through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When we ignore God's plan, and he has given us a plan, would you admit that there is a plan here, whether we're seeing eye to eye on every jot and tittle, it's here. And when he's given us his plan, are we ignore it or lightly esteem it or, or attach little importance to one of his precepts or less importance than he attaches to it, we make God small. And that's what man likes to do. Mankind wants a God they can manage because a big, omnipotent God that you, that's overall and who's, who's resolute, that's a fearful God that you'll have to appear before one day. But if we can just put him in our back pocket and use him however we want to, that's the God we can, we can manage. But that's not the God of the Scriptures. That's not the God of the Bible. He's not a God in your back pocket like a token, a rabbit's foot. He is God of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, Alpha and Omega. The earth, heaven and earth cannot contain him. In fact, the earth in a euphemism is his footstool where he puts his feet. He needs nothing. We bring nothing to the table that what he's already given us. And so we must keep that in mind. When we ignore the, the emphasis upon and the careful observance of the Lord's Day, we show that we are self-centered and put our agenda above the Lord's. And how puny and how pitiful is that? Oh, that we would delight in what the Lord delights in. And glory in what he is glory. And use his means and his safe fences in our lives to, to grow in grace and to, to, to perfection. Admittedly, and we'll make this clearer in another study, there are big differences in the Old Testament Jewish observance of the Sabbath and the New Testament Lord's Day observance. There are many similarities, but there are some differences. Remember that God was working through Israel in a national way and in a civil as well as moral way. And he used them and set precepts by them in a way different than he does his church. We must say that from the outset that it, does not, it is not true that as many preachers and teachers hold today, I've heard say, and you can read them, and many of them say that, that today that the fourth commandment has been rescinded or done away in the New Testament. I earnestly plead with you to show me where it has been. The only argument that they can give is that because it is not reiterated in the New Testament, that it has been rescinded. And that's the, the only the argument of silence is what people use against such a principle, an ordinance that's been set up since creation, since before man was put on earth. None of the reformers or godly line of Puritans or any of the historic confessions of faith, you find one, you cannot find one, or the majority of true believers down through the ages ever claim that the fourth command, the fourth uh, commandment was done away with by the work of Christ at Calvary. And so we see that, that nowhere in the New Testament is the fourth command to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy, was taken away. In fact, our Lord says in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, plural. What's he referring to? He's referring to the moral law of God as he reiterated and expanded in the, the, the Sermon on the Mount where he told us, you've heard it said of old time, he was referring to their, their 
rabbis who had added to and their writings, the traditions of the fathers, were put on the level of the law of God. And he, in the, the Sermon on the Mount, enlarged and taught what murder really was or adultery really, really was. First John 5, verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous. We've already seen that this observance was mandated in the garden before the law was ever given. And it supersedes the law long before the ceremonies of the, the law were put in place. And James tells us very clearly in James chapter 2 and verse 8 through 12 that the Ten Commandments are a whole. You don't get to pick the ones you want to observe and the ones you don't want to observe. The Ten Commandments are given as a whole. And James tells us very clearly that when you read that portion of Scripture, to violate one of them is to do what? To break all of them. There's some who console themselves because they've not committed a particular breaking of the commandments, which when you read our Lord's enlarging upon them, you see that we're all guilty of breaking all of them. If you hate someone or wish someone was gone, not on earth, what does he say? You've, you've murdered them. If you just think about a lustful act in your heart, it's the same as committing it. So our Lord presents it in such a way that all of us are condemned. There's none righteous, no, not one. We have all broken the law of God. But James strictly says to offend in one point is to offend in all. For whosoever will keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he says very clearly, is guilty of all. Our Lord tells us in Mark 2 verse 24, 2 verse 27, that the Sabbath was made for man or all mankind, not just something for Israel to observe. Also in that passage in verse 28, our Lord declares that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. And that's a very key teaching in this matter. The Sabbath was made for man and Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, if you're Lord over something, what does that mean? You own it. It's yours. You can do what you want to with it. You can interpret it. And the, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath, claiming it as his own. You can see why the Jews got very mad at him. How can you say, you're the Lord of the Sabbath? He declares his lordship over it. What a bold statement to make, because in doing so, he's saying, I am creator God. I own all things and these are mine to, to say what to do with. How could we say it doesn't matter whether you observe the Lord's Day? After all, the New Testament doesn't say anything about it. Would Jesus Christ say that he is Lord over something that he is about to do away with? Why bring it up at all? Why bring up the Sabbath and say I'm Lord over it if he's not going to expand it and teach it in this church age in a way that, that will be for us to observe? That Christ is Lord over the Sabbath means he owns it. It is his. He is honored on it and remembered by it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Which day of the week is to be observed? He can decide that, can't he? Which he does by his resurrection from the dead on the first day of the week. He is Lord, owner of this day. He created all days. And he's the one who set in motion this, this Sabbath principle. His work is to be remembered and proclaimed. His work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his work on the cross, his death on the cross, and his burial, if it stopped there, he would not have been the Savior. 
His glorious resurrection shows that he is creator and that his words are true. I lay my life down and I can take it up again. And he does it at the appointed hour early on the first day of the week. His work is to be remembered and proclaimed especially on this day. And he is its perpetrator. To be sure, the only place we see the phrase, interestingly, the Lord's day, is in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. The Apostle John is in his 90s, and tradition tells us because they could not kill him, they banished him to the Isle of Patmos, a prison reformatory kind of place, a rocky outcropping island where no one wanted to go. And uh, that's where John was, and he just made himself at home and worshipped the Lord, and the Lord visited him him there in that horrible circumstance he decided to give one of the choicest books in the Bible, filled with all that's going to happen at the end of time, to the elder John, the John who wrote the gospel. There he is, an old man, banished. He'd been pastor of the church at Ephesus for years, and it was said that when John would enter into their worship assemblies, he would come in when he was, he was in his 90s, he'd come in and he would touch them on the head and on the, on the back, and he was old enough to do this. And he would say, my little children love one another. He would come in every service and say, love one another, love one another. Well, John tells us that in that glorious text of Revelation 1 verse 10 where we read his testimony. Don't you love people's testimonies? How can you argue with a testimony? It's what happened to them. And John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And that's so vitally important because John is the last of the apostles. Remember what the Lord told his apostles when he was with them? I have many things yet to say to you, but you can't handle all of it, and you won't remember all of it. But you will remember it as I bring it to mind. And that became all that Jesus began to do and teach. All that he ever said to his his disciples became the New Testament. It is referred to as the apostles' doctrine. And here the last of them, the others of them are all dead. The last of them is John. He is seen uh, toward the end of the first century now. We're, we're gathering. And John declares that the Sunday is the Lord's day. Now he has apostolic authority. I was in the Spirit not on Tuesday, not on Thursday. I hope he was in the Spirit every day. But this particular revelation was given to him as he says so majestically, the King of kings and Lord of lords on the Lord's day. The first day of the week, we read and we know from the biblical record that the New Testament believers, as we saw in the pattern here in 1 Corinthians 16, that they met regularly on the first day of the week, the day of our Lord's resurrection. It became immediately a pattern. John 20, verse 1, the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. John, as we mentioned, the last of the living apostles ordained to establish the church, was calling this day, right before he died, the Lord's day, by the time the revelation was given to him. We see in the text that we we read in 1 Corinthians 16 that, that Paul told the believers in the churches of Galatia, Now, this is a broad area that covers a a large area, 
that, that when they met, as they had already was accustomed to do by that time, on the first day of the week, to gather a special offering that he was taking for the church at Jerusalem. Now, the church... The churches of Asia or Galatia would have included a vast number of congregations, including Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. All those congregations were meeting on the first day of the week. And he says, when you meet, Corinthians, as I have told the other churches under my apostolic authority, to gather, when you meet together, then I want you to make this offering to descend to Jerusalem. In Acts 20, verse 7, we, we see quite definitely that the believers at Troas, for example, were meeting on the first day of the week. Upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, they were observing the Lord's table. Paul preached to them, ready to depart on the morrow, and here's my proof text. And he preached until midnight. And uh, that was a long Lord's Day meeting, wasn't it? And, you know, the man fell out of the window and broke his neck and died, and they raised him and so forth. I, I would say that they observed the Lord's Day all day that day, wouldn't you? He, he preached so late. Some, many today say that our, our liberty in Christ releases us from the, the sphere of this fourth commandment. But our liberty in Christ does not release us from murder, does it? Could, could anyone say, we're in Christ, I can kill people if I want to because I'm in Christ. And yet, they will use that argument to banish away the fourth commandment. Or my liberty in Christ gives me liberty to steal if I have need of it. Of course not. You say, how, how ridiculous, Pastor. Or taking the Lord's name in vain, I'm in Christ. I have great, great liberty. My position in Christ gives me that liberty. Or not to have idols or that we have the freedom to violate the commandment regarding immorality? Of course not. Why then would it be this particular ordinance, this particular command of the Lord, that we have great liberty whether to choose or to observe it or not? We see such precedent, such importance attached to it by our Lord himself. Well, that's absurd. Our liberty in Christ, and we praise God for it, you shall be free indeed. And Paul does tell the, the Galatians, don't let those Judaizers, those who cannot let go of, of law and the ceremonial law, uh, bring you under its bondage by requiring the Gentiles to be circumcised and to observe a dietary law and a thousand other things. He, he said that we could not keep ourselves. And that's exactly what Paul is referring to there. Our liberty in Christ does not rescind any of God's binding moral law, does it? Or of which the fourth commandment is such a prominent part. People often, especially in this day of anything goes, misunderstand what, what Christian liberty is. As Peter Masters notes, the doctrine of Christian liberty refers to the liberty of free access to God. Without a priest or a mediator, save Christ the Lord. It also includes the following freedoms. Freedom from guilt or condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That's what our liberty in Christ provides for us. Our, we're free. We are, we've been set free. We're cleansed. We're justified. We're free from the ceremonial laws, not the moral law of God, the, of the Mosaic era. Paul tells the, the, in Romans chapter 1 that the moral law of God is written upon every heart, the conscience also bearing witness. Our liberty sets us free from bondage to the dominion of mastery of sin. He tells us in Romans 6, sin shall not have dominion over you, the, the, over, the, uh, over you or the world, or, or Satan has no dominion over us. 
Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And our liberty in Christ provides that. Our liberty in Christ provides freedom from the fear of death. Death has no sting. It has no dominion over us. We're set free from that. We'll awake in glory when we pass from this life. We'll wake up in glory in the Father's house. We, our liberty in Christ brings freedom from dominion over religious authorities. Christian liberty does not include, though, exemption from our duty, any duty that's described in God's Word, does it? We will observe and, and study coming soon how should the Lord's Day be observed. Uh, and more about the, the change from the, the first, to the first day of the week from the, the Old Testament seventh day. And, and warnings about neglecting this day. There are some, from some very real warnings in the Scripture. And I want to leave with you a glorious promise in Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 11. The Lord shall guide thee continually. Don't we want that? We need His blessing and guidance. And satisfy thy soul in drought. And make fat thy bones. That was a symbol of every good thing to His people. And thou shalt be like a watered garden. He's speaking of the coming church. The blooming and blessing and the glory of the church ought to be a play, an oasis here on earth. Our, our, our meetings should be a sanctuary, not in a building as such as when people come into the gatherings of God's people. They sense peace and calmness and love and blessing and seeking the Lord and the Spirit's power. And our church gathering should be a, a, like a watered garden. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Think of the botanical gardens or some special place in your mind. Maybe your own little backyard garden where you, you meditate or whatever. Thou shalt be the church on earth. God has left us here to be a watered garden. And like a spring of water. Doesn't that give a, a beautiful picture on a hot day, a spring of gushing water, whose waters fail not. In fact, the Lord says that we should be, by the, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, rivers of water should flow from us. And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations. The foundations are being destroyed. And I would submit to you this is one of those foundations that even the church is to helping to erode in this day. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations. Thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on, on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy are the sanctified of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him. Do you see the emphasis? If we honor what he honors and loves what he honors, loves, all that esteem me will I honor, the Lord tells us. And doing, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord." And I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. What a beautiful and powerful message to us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the gift of the Lord's day that you've given us to observe. Lord, we love it. May we delight in what you delight in. Lord, we've... Enter this time of worship today, 
And we thank you for what our souls have been fed and what our ears have heard, the truths you've taught us, the songs that have rehearsed your doctrine, the prayers that have encouraged us to pray and to lift our hearts in faith to your throne. Now, Lord, we, we pray that you would meet with us. And as we close this service on this day, we ask that you bless our efforts to serve you and to make Christ known. These servants here, Lord, I pray you'd bless their efforts. Many have labored in your vineyard and in prayer and in attendance and in singing and worship and teaching and going out into highways and hedges and gathering folks to your house. Bless every effort. And may we in eternity be glad that we gave of ourselves in this way when we see the souls, as we so preciously heard and reminded tonight, by and by when we look on your face, we're sure of it. We'll wish we'd given you more. So help us to do that now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.